We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, apologies, I'm a little frazzled. I had some technical issues here. Had some. Uh, we had. Uh, we were planning on doing some. Or we were doing some work in our backyard, and but we weren't planning on doing it today. But then, um, our guy, great guy, came by and said, "Hey, I had a cancellation. Do you mind if I start today?" And so he's doing it right outside the back windows of my basement office, which means every now and then you're going to hear some thumping and banging and that kind of thing. And I apologize for it. Maybe Adam can get it out of the audio track. Um, My understanding is that he did a really good job of getting rid of the weird Charlie Cook lisp um, that Charlie does not in fact have uh, when he did the podcast last week. Um, At the last minute, by his on his phone from a hotel room. Um, and I'm still very grateful for it. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to mention this, but and I, I probably shouldn't do this, but a uh, true story. Um, so there are times when like most of the, like, the G file stuff I write, you know, the, the bonkers weird stuff, it comes to me in the moment because that's the only way I can write that stuff. You can't really plan on some of it. You sort of just get into a groove, you know, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And, you know, uh, Sometimes wordplay just comes off as dad humor these days, which, you know, I'm fine with. I'm a dad. I have humor, whatever. But uh, last week, I, f- I was reading this thing about, I was making a defense of the Oxford comma on Twitter, and I was reading this thing about, the, I wanted to confirm like the, the sort of official definition or explanation of the Oxford comma, and I was looking at it. And anyway, I got into this thing, Charlie in my head, you know, where the voices were screaming, um, you know, to put down that knife. No, but the the voices were screaming about this thing in my head about trying to come up with this wordplay pun of, uh, because Charlie, I'll just, I'll just give you the ingredients and you can see where I'm going. So like the, um, the Oxford comma explanation. So an Oxford comma is like when you, when you list, you know, uh, different items in a sentence, you should have a comma after the item that comes before the and so that the last two items in the list aren't uh, lumped together as one thing. You know, the uh, panda eats, shoots, and leaves, right, is like the famous book or essay thing explaining this. You know, if, if, you, have, if you don't have the Oxford comma, uh, then you can say um, uh, dogs, cats, and mice, 
and cats and mice can be seen as one as one grouping rather than two separate things. Anyway, it's not super important. I probably missed a chance here to come up with some funny version of eat shoots and leaves, but you get the point. So anyway, the definition was all about how you have to have a you have this thing to to uh, give space and reduce ambiguity or something like that. And I got into this thing in my head about how well you know. Charlie Cook went to Oxford and then I wanted to make a joke about how he slipped and fell and how uh, it, it made him a changed man because he went into this Oxford coma. And I spent way too much time trying to make it work and make it funny and it just never worked. And this is just a little glimpse into the um, people only ever see what ends up on the page or on the screen and that kind of stuff. But in reality, there's all sorts of stuff that that doesn't, and that was one of them. And uh, I probably wasted an enormous amount of productive time in my 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 lollygagging modes, um, trying to make that work in my head. Okay, enough with the throat clearing stuff. Where to begin? Uh, I, I mostly have rage <laughs> right now um, at the stupidity of so many things. So we might as well start with the Tennessee uh, state legislature expelling two of three lawmakers who protested the lack of action on guns and the state legislature and all that. And I am, um, I kept asking in Slack, um, you know, on texts, friends, I was like, what is the best, you know, what is that steel man this? What is the best argument for what the Republicans are up to here? And I wasn't necessarily looking for a moral argument because I don't think there really is like a moral or principled argument that is very strong. Yes. State legislators should not disrupt the regular order with stunts. Fair, fine, good, great, whatever. Um, but politically, is that really worth the the grief that Republicans are going to get for by actually expelling three people who actually aren't going to be expelled for very long, if my understanding um, is right? I, I, they only expelled two because they ultimately didn't expel the white legislature, legislator, which is its own kind of, you know, stupidity. And, um, you know, that way this morning on CNN and on MSNBC, you know, the headline is uh, Tennessee legislature expels black lawmakers, which is just, I mean, I think it's, it's a cheap framing, but at the same time, it's totally expectable. Right. Um, and, uh, Anyway, so like there, I can't, I can't figure out what the, there's no real great moral or philosophical principle here. And that's fine. I was like, okay, what's like the shrewd, canny, utterly cynical, but, but hardball smart politics move. And no one can give me one of those either. And now maybe there's somebody, some listener out there who, who can, and has got some great sort of explanation for why, um, you know, this, this made sense on the, you know, it, it was in the Republican interest to do this. Um, but I can't find it. No one I've talked to can give it to me. Because, um, like, for example, I was saying to my friends or colleagues, whatever, last night, um, like, I think the way the Democrats boosted, signal boosted uh, MAGA candidates in 2022 was grotesquely cynical. Um and I've never seen a, a, a moral um, principled defense of it 
beyond the idea that America's better off if Democrats win, right? Which is like, the, if it's a moral or principled defense, it's the lowest rung on a very tall ladder of defenses. But as a matter of hardball politics, that was very smart, very cynical, right? You're going around saying, um, this faction of the Republican Party, this super MAGA, ultra MAGA, you know, faction is 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 fascist, anti-democratic, authoritarian. They're going to destroy the country. But let's do everything we can to get them nominated in the GOP primaries because that'll give us a um, modest advantage um, or turns out a significant advantage given that, that basically every single one they signal boosted lost, um, which tells you something about the influence of Donald Trump in, the, um, in American politics, but we can get to that stuff later. Um, so you can't like, you know, look, I, and I, and I, as I said at the time, you guys heard me say at the time, those of you who listened back then, like, it's one thing to do that in 2012, where you meddle in the other parties' primaries to get, you know, a more favorable candidate who says really stupid things, you know, which like Claire McCaskill did in 2012. It's another thing to say these people pose an existential threat to democracy and the constitution and signal boost them. Um, when in fact you would be doing more good for the country by discrediting them within the Republican Party, um, so I thought it was it was grotesque and cynical, and nobody has yet offered me a single defense of it beyond the sort of real politique. Um, it was uh, smart politics thing. What's the smart politics thing here about expelling lawmakers? Um, for, uh, you know, being disruptive, which I think they're clearly guilty of, but you could have censured them. You could have done all sorts of other things. But, and so instead what they did was they expelled two of the three, right? They tried to vote, expel all three, but the vote for the white one fell short. Great, great messaging there, guys. Um, and it's almost like there's no context to the fact that what these guys were, were uh, inappropriately um, boisterous about was the fact that a bunch of, well, a bunch, three, nine-year-old kids were murdered, um, as well as three adults at a Christian school. Um, and rather than, and, and look, I had Charlie Cook on here. Kevin Williamson writes about this all the time. For us, I'm, I'm generally persuaded that there's not a lot, both in terms of policy or politics or uh, within the realm of the constitutional to solve these problems in terms of gun regulations or gun control, reasonable people can differ about that. I'm persuaded. That's fine. But like, imagine you're just like a normal person who doesn't really engage much in politics and you live in Tennessee and you maybe even know some people who um, were affected or you were affected um, by this school shooting of little kids. And the only thing that arouses real passion and strong, manly political will from Republicans isn't doing something. I mean, it doesn't have to be about gun control. It could be about mental health stuff. It could be about more police or more guards at schools or whatever. But instead of like leaning into that and showing that you um, have responded to this emergency or this crisis or this horror with a sense of urgency and crisis and horror, um, they instead chose to like get national attention by kicking a couple people out who were in fact filled with urgency and passion 
and horror at the shooting. And, um, and as I understand it, they can put, you know, the districts can put in interim legislators. So these guys are, are probably going to be back, at least one of them, but probably both of them are going to be back in three weeks. But now they get to raise money from a national donor base, right? Now they, they get to be, you know, get, you know, interviews on, as far as I could tell this morning, almost every network, um, not Fox, but, uh, you know, so to what end? I mean, it's just, it, it feels like, you know, there's this, there's this argument that you find in certain parts of the, I don't want to call them natcons because they're not all natcons and they're not all post-liberal integralist types. Um, and, you know, I think MAGA comes closest, but we're just talking about the sort of the, the, the culturally overconfident, um, you know, uh, you know, we don't have to compromise with that. The uncompromising part of the sort of ultra cons in the Republican Party these days. There's this argument from that crowd that sort of says, um, if you have power, you have to use it. You have to show yourself using power. You know, as Trump will put it, you have to, you have to seem strong. You have to appear strong. You have to be strong. Strong like bull. And, um, and there's a certain, look, I mean, I've, I've, read my son too. I've read, you know, I know Marcus Aurelius and Machiavelli to one extent or another, you know, um, there's an argument for like, you know, uh, peace through strength kind of thing, right? There's an argument for intimidating your opponents by displaying your will to do what is necessary and yada, yada, yada. My problem with this was what is necessary. It was like, it was like, let's show how strong we are by taking a ball peen panner ball-peen hammer, and continually smacking ourselves in the crotch with it. What, what, what was gained by this? And, you know, again, I don't expect the Tennessee legislature to care much about, like, the national media climate when they're all worked up with their own thing and all that. But, you know, there was this Afghan um, withdrawal report that came out that's not good for Biden, in part because it seems really shoddy and political. Um, and that just got pushed out of the news. Um, as did, you know, if you, if you believe that this indictment of Trump is bad, um, and works to Trump's advantage, that got pushed out of the news. This gave, you know, along with Wisconsin, the elections in Wisconsin and Chicago, something for the media to say, look how terrible the Republicans are. Um, and sometimes you have to do that, right? Certainly if you're like, let's say you're a principled, sincere pro-lifer. And you put the pro-life cause ahead of, say, um, electoral prospects for the GOP, then you're going to be willing to take take one for the team. Um, you know, you're you're going to be willing to sort of throw the Republican Party under the bus for something that you consider to be more uh, morally transcendent, more urgent, um, more of an imperative. I get that, but throwing these two dudes out for a couple weeks. Um, and not doing it to the white one so that you then actually like literally give the headlines to people who are going to interpret what you're doing in bad faith, no matter what, but you make it that much easier by saying, you know, well, well, we'll just kick out the young black men. Right. I mean, like, why, what, what, what do you gain by that? What voters have you persuaded to sort of sign up with you that weren't already with you? It's just, it's, it's just so stupid. And performative, 
Um, and um, I just don't get it. I mean, I, I, I mean, like, I, there are people whose whose politics I really disagree with in all sorts of ways, but I can at least you know respect their ability to play the game if they're good at playing the game. But if if you're going to be a jackass and behave like a jackass for no serious political advantage, I just, why? It's so childish. Um, oh, yeah. So this really, this like legitimately depressed me yesterday. I've never like followed closely this whole Rebecca Jones thing in Florida. Um, um, she is this woman who like worked for the State Department of Health and is, you know, sort of a democratic liberal activist type person, whatever. And, you know, most of what I know or remember of it is from, uh, again, Charlie Cook, post-coma, post-Oxford coma. Um, uh, his stuff in the corner about her, which seemed utterly persuasive and, and discrediting of, of Jones. Um, and also I remember Steve Inskeep, I think it was, interviewed her once on NPR and she did really, really badly. But um, basically she was claiming too much celebration from the us usual corners at the early parts of the pandemic that DeSantis was censoring her and as opposed to science because she was recording COVID deaths or COVID cases in ways that DeSantis disagreed with and DeSantis didn't defer to her and she became one of these martyr types, you know, sort of a Joe the plumber of the left kind of figure who um, uh, was heroic and speaking truth to power to DeSantis and lost her job and was fired for politics. And, blah, blah. and since then, she's kind of wanted, as far as I could tell, cling to this sort of 15 minute of fame thing and become um, more generally just sort of a very progressive activist type in Florida um, kind of crazy, kind of not worth paying attention to, but so I didn't. Right. And then I saw this thing on, on, on Twitter that I was sure had to be fake at first. Um, but it turns out it's real. So apparently, you know, she made this big splash, I guess the day before yesterday, uh, the night before last night, something like that. I, I'm not positive of the timeline. Um, but she said, she claimed that police in Florida had taken custody of her son and that she had to send her husband and daughter out of the state for safety. This is what it's like to be a citizen in um, fascist Florida under Ron DeSantis. And it was like a pretty wild allegation without, you know, there was no explanation in the tweets about why this was, or at least I didn't see it. Um, but basically she was flatly saying that the, the, the state of Florida had basically arrested and uh, and put her son or 13 year old son in custody as a political punishment of Jones as a retaliation which if true should have you know DeSantis impeached in 10 seconds like the idea of taking someone's child as sort of a political hostage um you know short of murdering someone's child it's it's up there in serious allegations or insinuations in politics to accusing someone of murder. It's, you know, it's short of that, but not that short of that. And then it turns out that, th that her son is uh, clearly troubled. He posted some stuff on social media or texted some friends. Anyway, it's, it's in the Florida papers 
about how his antidepressants aren't working. So he might as well just give up hope and become a school shooter. And he makes references to Columbine and the kids from Columbine. And, and he talks about how he's going to kill all the losers and why not? And um, educate people about Columbine. You know, this like seriously troubled stuff. And apparently, and so then there's this video that emerges, which again, I think is real, <laughs> of her actually, of Rebecca Jones taking her son and voluntarily uh, surrendering him to authorities because he had threatened to become a mass shooter. Now, I don't know if he has access to guns. I don't know if this was a cry for help. It doesn't sound like it was a joke per se, because who like makes big jokes about how their antidepressants aren't working and Therefore, I'm going to go kill a bunch of kids in a middle school. But even as a joke, you got to kind of take it seriously. It's sort of like the airport thing where if you make jokes about having a bomb, you kind of the, the, the flight attendant people or the, 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 the ticket agent people or the TSA people have to take it seriously. Right. And they just, they just have to take it seriously. Um, and this is even more serious because you're talking about a kid um, and with kids like that, you know, who are on antidepressants, you know, first of all, I don't think there's any stigma about being on antidepressants, but if you're on antidepressants and you're complaining how they don't work and therefore you have no choice but to go murder a bunch of people, um, even if it's intended as a joke, sometimes jokes like that are cries for help. And I can just tell you, like, you know, if my kid was doing anything like that, anything remotely like that, the idea that I would take to Twitter about any of it is so in in freaking conceivable to me. Um, the idea that I would politicize any about it, any of it is just inconceivable to me. And the fact that I would lie about it in a way that was going, that, that any rational person um, would have to be able to foresee was going to get exposed is it's just so unbelievably irrational that it bummed me out. I mean, it's like sad. Like, like, I mean, it's bad. Bad parenting doesn't really even cover it. And I don't, I'm not a big, oh, you're a, you know, a big finger wagger at other people's parenting. Parenting is hard. Um, you're dealing with the crooked timber of humanity. It's very difficult to be rational about parenting because, you know, all sorts of issues like love distort our thinking. Um, but you know, and I know I did criticize and I said they were from, uh, Colorado, but they're actually from Michigan. I did a couple podcasts ago, criticize the parents who let their kid have access to a gun after he very clearly wanted to be a school shooter. And I called them crap, craptacular parents. And I stand by that, but like, you have to do something like that for me to really sort of go after people's parents. I remember it shocked a whole bunch of people 15 years ago when, this audio of Alec Baldwin getting into a fight with his daughter leaked. And I had been a pretty relentless critic of Alec Baldwin prior to 30 Rock. Um, and, um, and a lot of the political stupidity stuff that he did. And I remember taking the corner just saying, hey, look, this is, got to give a pass on this. Like maybe it's because of my, my parents' experience with my brother. You know, uh, parents get frustrated. They say things. Um, uh, it's complicated. Um, and it's just not something that a lot of people should have this 
incredible confidence about judging other people um, on how they parent. So I am open to the idea that I'm missing some crucial context or facts here. But on the plain reading, like, if your kid is getting arrested for being a, a wannabe school shooter as a result of them having a mental health crisis, and your response is to lie about it on Twitter, that's not good parenting. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm open to correction on that, but like, I'm pretty confident I can say that. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. The most important holiday of the year is coming up, Father's Day. It's the same dilemma people have every year. What do you get the man who already has everything? Put down the slippers and step away from the ties and get your dad something unexpected, an Aura digital frame. Longtime listeners know that I'm actually really happy to recommend Aura frames. I've never had a problem with them. I have two. I've given them as gifts. I gave one to my daughter. They're incredibly versatile. They're easy to use. You can update them. It's just like this really simple app on your phone. Customize the settings for how long the pictures stay. You can beam new photos from anywhere to the frame. Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital frame that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's really easy to upload and share photos using the app. And if you're giving an Aura frame as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Father's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting Aura Frames to get $30 off on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. This deal ends June 18th, so don't wait. Use code REMNANT. This is the important part for our inter-office rivalries. Use promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so what else? Uh, oh, I mentioned the Afghan report, so let's talk about the Afghan report. I gave it a quick uh, perusal yesterday, um, and I watched some of, or I listened to some of that press conference with uh, Kirby, the, the national security spokesperson, and... I got to so like, I mean, I'm sure we'll have a good piece up at the dispatch that gets into the weeds of this. Um, even if I didn't want to, you know, Steve cares so much about this issue that he would um, mandate it. Look, I think the Afghan withdrawal was one of the biggest foreign policy defense blunders um, of my lifetime. And you can argue um, Iraq war is bigger. Fine. You know, but Iraq war for the people who think it was a total blunder was a pretty big friggin' blunder. Um, and uh, you can argue that the Afghan war was a bigger blunder and that this was a, a effort to remedy a blunder. Fine. All those arguments, we can have those conversations and those debates. But the simple fact is, is that what Biden did was utterly unforced and voluntary. And this report from what I can tell, is just essentially a whitewash. Um, uh, 
and it it tracks with the Biden White House's approach to this, which is when you criticize the means of withdrawal, they change they try to change the debate to the necessity of withdrawing. And that, you know, as Biden has put it a couple times in one way or another, that these sorts of problems were inevitable no matter how you withdrawed, so withdrew, so let's just withdraw. And I think that's first of all, even if you think that's true, it's not provable. I don't think it's true. Um, I don't think the average American who was paying attention at the time thinks it's true. Um, uh, and the Biden attempt to, the, or this report's attempt and Kirby's attempt to sort of really say, oh, the real problem was with the Trump administration, which left them in a really bad place with no options and a timetable they had to adhere to and all that. I just think it's all BS. I, I think people understand. I take a backseat to very few of my criticisms of the Trump administration. I think Pompeo is getting away with a lot of BS spin about Afghanistan, and he was when he was Secretary of State as well. I think that there's um, lots of things to criticize the Trump administration for, including its desire to get out in the first place. But like, it's a reasonable position to say we should get out of Afghanistan. The devil is in the details about the the manner in which you get out. Now, I personally think we shouldn't have gotten out. I think, you know, if you, if you believe as the Biden administration claims to that the future of, of geopolitics and, and national security strategy is about great power rivalries and competition, um, having an airbase and listening post right in the middle of, um, the Russian and Chinese sphere of influence, you know, makes a lot of sense to me, um, just as a raw, cold, uh, realpolitik kind of thing. And, but regardless, totally defensible to say that we should have gotten out. Um, again, I disagree with it, but like, it's not a beyond the pale position by any stretch of the imagination. And lots of polls said that they wanted to get out. What they didn't say was um, that the American people want to get out at any cost or be humiliated in getting out. And I'm convinced until demonstrated otherwise that basically what this was about was that Biden wanted to get out in the Obama administration. He was overruled and maybe a little ridiculed um, or not taken seriously enough. And that's something Biden hated to not be taken seriously on foreign policy stuff. Um, and so when he got into office, he was like, I'm going to prove all you guys right and do it on my terms. And I'm not going to listen to anybody. And the fact that, at least according to the reporting, you know, I've seen that the Pentagon and a lot of the military and national security advisors wanted Biden to leave a minimal number of troops there, like 2,500, completely undermines the, the Biden administration's claim and this sort of this report's claim that their, tan their hands were tied by, um, by agreements that the Trump administration made. If they were, if hands were actually tied by things that the Trump administration did, um, those generals and advisors would know that too. Clearly it was an open question. Clearly it, there was a, there was a disagreement among top people in the administration, never mind outside the administration, about whether or not Biden's hands were actually tied. I mean, who ties them? What tying? Biden made this choice. It was his choice. He did it. Trump didn't make him do it. And when, you know, Kirby says this report isn't about finding accountability, what the hell is that? 
you know? So like, like I'm a critic of a lot of the GOP, um, House GOP investigate this, investigate that stuff, but this definitely should be investigated. Um, you should definitely have administration people raked over the coals on this. And if, you know, the crowd at Morning Joe says, how does this fight inflation or get jobs or whatever? This is not what they ran on. Screw that noise, right? Because this is, in fact, what the Republicans ran on. And this is a completely legitimate form of oversight. And I'd much rather, you know, see Jim Jordan, those guys go after this stuff then, you know, all of this, we're going to investigate Alvin Bragg stuff. Um, this is legitimate. This is what Congress is for. Um, Congress has the power of the purse. Congress sets the defense budget. Um, and when this happened in real time, when America pulled out, Democrats and Republicans alike were embarrassed and, and outraged by how we did it. So I've seen nothing to say that that outrage um, and embarrassment was misplaced. So let's have a really good investigation because this report isn't it. Um, okay, so I think I have been judicious and responsible so far in my uh, stream of consciousness podcasting so far this morning. Um, so let me be a little more self-indulgent and obscure. Uh, I listened to my friends over at the editor's podcast at NR, as people know, you know, Love those guys, and I'm still a um, fan of a lot of their work and agree with a lot of their work. And I agree with, and I'm just doing this as a jumping off point because it's fresh in my head. I agree with virtually all of their criticisms of the Bragg indictment, about the problem with it, about um, how this has been good for Trump. I definitely disagree with my friend Michael Brennan Doherty that uh, 95% of Trump's Mar-a-Lago Mar speech was unassailable, or I think his phrase was, un, cannot be gainsaid. Um, I think that's, that's way off in terms of the percentage. But, you know, I get his larger point, which is that the Bragg thing has lent credibility to Trump's claims and Republican claims that the the woke left or the deep state or whatever is um, weaponizing the criminal justice state or the criminal justice system. I think if you actually take most of these statements, if you parse them in a sort of a spirit of, of, of intellectual rigor, there's all sorts of hot garbage in there, right? I mean, like a lot of tweets do not withstand scrutiny. But, you know, for example, I don't know, you can say that the deep state is weaponizing the criminal justice system, or you can say that the woke left is criminalizing the justice system, but the two things aren't necessarily the same thing, by which I mean, Alvin Bragg was elected to his office in election. That's not the deep state doing something. That's voters in a very liberal borough in Manhattan, I mean, in New York, asking a district attorney to do what he campaigned on, right? I mean, that's not the deep state. It's, it's electoral accountability. And a lot of the people who want to make these arguments about how the weaponized justice system um, in the deep state, first of all, usually when we talk about the justice system, we're talking about, you know, the FBI and all that kind of thing. We're conflating the Manhattan DA's office with, you know, uh, the Department of Justice. They're not the same things. I can almost guarantee you <laughs> that the guys at the Department of Justice who are looking to indict Trump, you know, the Jack Smith crew, I guarantee you they're not happy about, I can't guarantee you, 
I, I strongly suspect after much informed conversation with people that they are not happy about um, uh, Bragg doing this because of the political taint it gives to all future indictments of Trump, even though future indictments of Trump should be looked at on their own individual merits. There's no transitive property here. Um, and if you're looking at this and saying it's bad, that doesn't require you to look at the next one and say it's bad too. Um, and um, regardless, uh, I think there's a lot of sloppy talk out there and about a lot of this stuff, but directionally at the 30,000 foot level, I agree with, um, with Michael and, and Rich and Charlie and all these guys about their criticisms. I also agree with, you know, uh, Sarah and David and a lot of my guys at the dispatch about all this. But here's the thing that bothers me. And I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to write about this because I'm so freaking tired of writing about some of this stuff. But here, here's sort of my problem. So like, and I know I kind of ranted about this a little bit last week, but you know, my whole thing about how I used to say in 2015 and 2016, this is going to end in tears no matter what. So you might as well do the right thing. Um, you know, it's very difficult for me to extricate myself from a sort of, I told you so attitude about all of this, about how this, about how Donald Trump was, was going to be a really pernicious corrupting force in the GOP and on the right. And that the best thing to do is just not got, not go down the road with him at all. Um, um, and the thing that bothers me about a lot of these throughout the Trump presidency, throughout the um, post Trump presidency is this tendency to sort of, look at the latest anti-Trump outrages in isolation as if they are coming out de novo, that um, this is the thing that is going to put us on a slippery slope. When in reality, we've been on a very slippery slope, sliding down it for a very long time. Um, and uh, so like, you know, I agree with, with, you know, my, Michael used the phrase something like, this is a very dangerous road to go down about the Bragg indictment. And I agree with him in, in the colloquial sense by what she means. Like taking, taking this sort of action could, and, and Ramesh made a very good case for this in the Washington Post this week, taking this court of action is could and 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 likely will corrupt um, uh, our politics in all sorts of terrible ways, right? They'll make things worse in all sorts of terrible ways, or they can, you know. I mean, uh, Benny Johnson, who I do not take seriously as a thinker, um, you know, met him once or twice when he was at NR. Um, I think he's. Uh, almost a quintessentially perfect creature of sort of MAGA Inc. kind of approach to politics. But he's not alone. Um, a bunch of people have, have been making this case to one way or another. Um, but I just, someone sent me this, texted me this tweet where he says, um, and this is from yesterday afternoon, the majority of district attorneys in America are Republican. 
Why are they not prosecuting Democrats? It's time to take the gloves off now. Now, this is a very old argument of mine, but it's actually a timeless moral argument that predates me by thousands of years. Um, If you actually think what Bragg is doing is terrible and wrong, there is no moral argument for Republicans to do the same thing, right? This gets at my Alinsky envy problem where, you know, I spent years, you know, I'm, I'm partly to blame for the sort of fearful demonization of Saul Alinsky. It was a part of liberal fascism. I wrote columns about it, whatever. Um, but my point was always that he was a bad guy and that his approach to politics was, was, was poisonous and, 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 should be condemned. And then there's this thing that flipped somewhere. I like basically, if you put a timeline on it, somewhere in the middle of Obama's second term, where all of a sudden Republicans just sort of decided, you know, Democrats are the last always wins and they win because they're Alinskyites and they use Alinskyite tactics. So that's what we got to do. And that whole sort of, you know, MAGA industrial complex crowd with their various court intellectuals, Dinesh, Gerchlichter, that crowd, they fully embrace this, this approach to politics and they're self-righteous about it. When in fact, what they are doing is quite explicitly sometimes admitting that they are doing the second wrong to make a right, that they are um, fighting arsonists with fire. And I find the whole thing just utterly depressing. But that's actually not the point I was trying to get at. The point I was trying to get at is that, you know, the Bragg indictment's not chapter one of this story about how things are going to get worse. It's not even chapter 12. It's like we are, the road that Michael doesn't want to go down, which I don't want to go down either, we are way down that road. We're way down that road. And my problem with the way a lot of these these sort of you know, I, I, I've been writing this column for seven years now about how Trump's violations of norms gives permission to his enemies to violate norms, right? He brings out the worst in his enemies and then the excesses of his even enemies uh, serve as a sort of political justification for Trump's excesses. And then this cycle repeats and yada, 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 and on we go. Um, and, you know, you know, so like Rich on the podcast had this line where he says, you know, Donald Trump, yeah, he campaigned on lock her up, um, but he didn't actually do it, you know, and this is Bragg doing it. And I get the point. I think he's just sort of in some ways technically right. But like, that's also a kind of a what about us argument. Um, it's as, weirdly, it's a what, it's not a what about us attack. It's a what about us defense. Um, and, and I get it. And there's a logic to it. And I'm not trying to, you know, there's no bad faith accusation here. It's a frustration I have with the way we talk about these things because we're supposed to talk about, we're supposed to have our takes for the day, the takes on the latest news. Um, and we have this tendency to sort of like um, the guy in uh, the Christopher Nolan movie Memento who has a you know short-term memory of like 18 minutes and then starts over. Every day, whoever did the the most recent worst thing, we say, okay, this is... Um, going to put us on a slippery slope. This is going to invite retaliation. Um, um, 
When in fact, the this that happened today is largely in response to the that which happened yesterday or the week before. And um, I go back to my point is that this is all downstream of the kind of politics that, that I can't really say Trump introduced because then I'm violating my own point, right? Trump was not the cause of all the problems in this country or on the right, but he made all of them worse, right? They're accelerating. And so at some point, you sort of have to say, where are we going to start the timeline? And, you know, I remember talking to Pod about John Podoritz about how, you know, he's convinced, um, he was joking, but, you know, he was convinced that the moment that, what's his name, the black comedian, opened the envelope and read the wrong name for the Academy Award winner for, I guess, Best Actor or Best Picture or whatever, um, that's when we slipped into the darkest timeline. But as I've talked about with John before, you, you know, this loss of faith and trust in institutions um, it's, it's kind of turtles all the way down, right? I mean, you can always find some event that predated the event where you think all of this started. Um, you know, the, the Clinton Lewinsky scandal stuff was downstream of the Bob Packwood and Clarence Thomas stuff. Um, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who thought that the Clinton impeachment was payback for the, for Watergate, you know, when, um, there were people who argued that Watergate was payback for the Kennedy stealing the election in 1960. And eventually, you know, you can play these games with all these different trends. And eventually, you know, you're talking about how, you know, Joachim of Fior introduced Gnosticism into Western civilization and everything's gone to hell ever since. I mean, like at some point you just got to say, okay, this is the fork in the road. And I think that at minimum, you can say that we've taken some bad forks in the road um, prior to Trump, but then we had a new uh, fork to take and we took the Trumpy one and things have gotten decidedly worse. And, um, and so again, I don't, I'm not trying to defend Bragg. I think what he did was ill-advised. Um, you know, I've talked to one lawyer who thinks that the, the indictment is kind of solid and justifiable. And I've talked to 15 who have, who think it's, it's a hot mess and indefensible, but like, this is what you get when you, um, you know, you spend your time, I don't know, feeding meth and, and Jack Daniels to an orangutan. And then you sort of say, you know, come with me and you let them loose in a, in a amusement park, bad things are going to happen, right? I mean, like we made it, we made choices collectively that got us to here. And um, Bragg is just simply like chapter 512 of this story. And um, there's a way in which we talk about like Trump stuff as if none of the things that he did to invite trouble and bad karma and so destruction in this country, um, and particularly among on the right, um, should play a role. And it's kind of like a root causes argument, you know, I, which I feel weird making, but it's just, it's something about the sort of lack of rhetorical acknowledgement. And, and again, I'm not really criticizing the guys on the others because all those guys think 
you know, to one extent or another, think, you know, Trump is bad for the GOP, bad for the country, shouldn't be president and all the rest. But um, I guess one of my point is, is I, I'm kind of losing the ability to mount fresh outrage daily um, as if the stuff that happened yesterday and the day before and the year before and the year before hadn't happened that got us to this place. Um, and, 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 and the thing that kind of bums me out are lots of things bum me out. But one of the things that bums me out is that, first of all, it bums me out that I'm quoting scent of a woman again, because really I got problems with that movie. Um, but in that, in that scene chewing scene at the end, uh, scenery chewing scene at the end where Al Pacino does his whole peroration to get, I guess, Chris O'Donnell off the hot seat. He has this line about, you know, every time in my life I've seen, I've, you know, I, I've, I've been to the crossroads and I knew what the right thing to do was, but it was just too damn hard. I think that that, when you look back over the last seven years, there have been so many crossroads where so many good and decent people, flawed, you know, politicians for the most part, um, who think that their own career trajectory is more important than it is, knew what the right thing to do was, and um, or at least strongly suspected what the right thing to do was, and didn't do it because it was just too damn hard. And they rationalized all of these other, and definitely at Fox News, my God, um, you know, lots of places, that where they, they knew what the right thing to do was, but the rewards for doing the wrong thing were so great and the, the downside of doing the right thing was so acute and concentrated on them that uh, it's, eh, it's not my job, right? I mean, this is, this is, I'm a big defender of Mitch McConnell, given the, the childishness of so much of the GOP. But this is the great, you know, criticism of Mitch McConnell is, you know, he kept kicking the can, right? You know, he, you, you read what he said about, January 6th on the floor of the Senate, and then you find out he voted against impeachment or against conviction. Um, it's not profound courage, you know? And at least I can appreciate some of the cost-benefit analysis that go into someone like McConnell doing that, but even though I think it was the wrong decision. Um, but there's just this, this tendency to keep coming to a crossroad and saying, but if... For the last seven years, there have been all of these opportunities to say, it's so obvious this Trump thing is not going to work out well, right? Um, and, you know, there's the first impeachment, there's the second impeachment, uh, there are all sorts of primaries, you know, um, and, and, and this is a criticism of primary voters too, right? Um, I don't know why they need to be let off the hook. And it's also, you know, it's a criticism of the mainstream media. They gave him billions of dollars of free media because it was entertaining and they thought he couldn't win. Um, it's a, it's a, it's criticism of the Democratic Party, which should have known that Hillary Clinton was not the candidate to nominate, but the internal dynamics of the party and of liberalism and of the media, um, said, hey, why not go for it? And hey, look, it's great. You know, Obama did such a good job of elevating Trump and goading him into running and of course he'll lose. So, you know, we can take a flyer on Hillary. Um, 
because blame, again, it's not symmetrical. Some people deserve a lot more blame than other people, but there's a lot of blame to go around. And, um, and so what just frustrates me is this idea of taking the news of the day and saying, oh, all these bad things will come from what the liberals are doing or what the Democrats are doing without understanding that we have been in this, um, you know, Hegelian dialectic of crap for so long where, you know, their thesis justifies our antithesis, you know, on and on and on and on and on where there's never any synthesis. There's only just more pendulum swinging and, and horribly mixed metaphors um, for as far as the eye can see. And I guarantee you, the Bragg indictment is going to bring out worse things in Trump and Trump supporters. And then the, and that action is going to bring out worse things in liberals and anti-Trumpers. And um, on and on it's going to go until at some point, you know, the right simply says, look, this guy, he brings out the worst. He doesn't just bring out the worst in, in our enemies. He brings out the worst in us. And when the worst in us comes out, like this craziness in Tennessee, or this guy in Wisconsin, Kelly, who lost um, in the Supreme Court race, you know, and says, uh, I, you know, in his concession speech, I wish I had a worthy opponent. I wish I had an opponent worthy enough to concede to, but I don't, you know, it was like just the most ungracious, ridiculous crap. And of course, Trump, blamed his loss on the fact that, that this guy didn't want Trump's endorsement. But this guy had had Trump's endorsement before and lost. And one of the reasons why he lost was that he had embraced a lot of the stop the steal BS in the first place. I mean, Trump is like a kid playing in mud. And, and you say, well, you know, what's the harm in letting him play with my, you know, all of my receipts and tax returns? He won't get anything on it. He gets everything on everything. And, um, and then people are shocked by the reaction from other people. It's, it's, at some point you just got to cauterize the wound. Anyway, I am now officially rambling about this, so I'll stop. Oh, I loved having AB on. I think people can tell how much I love AB. AB Stoddard, Real Clear Politics. I realized I never actually mentioned her, uh, affiliation when I introduced her. I just assumed the listeners knew it. Um. I'm thinking more and more about this, you know, her, she's out on this limb with this argument about how Biden is still not going to run and he's stringing everybody along. I'm not convinced, but I'm, you know, I'm more open to it than, um, than a lot of people are, you know, a lot of responsible people. So there's just all wishful thinking and, um, out on the limb and all that kind of stuff, you know, and it turns out, you know, a lot of people have left the Biden administration and just kind of disappeared. They're not working for some campaign thing. You know, maybe, maybe the campaign will get together um, and they'll, they'll come aboard, but you know, it's not the behavior, you know, just, it's pure criminology, but it's not the behavior you would expect if you thought that he was going to run again. Um, I would dearly love for him not to run again. Um, uh, not as much as I would dearly love for Trump not to run again, but 
I would love to see the Democrats put up the most qualified, best, most normal candidate against the Republicans, most qualified, best, normal candidate. Um, I so want normal politics again. And um, even though, look, it would be probably bad for me in some way, but um, I just don't care. Um, um, but, you know, I've been thinking about it. I now put it at 25%, 30% um, chance that, that Biden, in fact, doesn't run again. And then it'll be interesting to see, you know, who gets in. Um, I just want to be upfront. Robert F. Kennedy announced this week that he is going to primary Joe Biden. And um, I now feel, having told you that, that I've already given this too much coverage. Um, I don't take RFK seriously. Um, uh, and one of the weird ironies is that, I don't know, it is not inconceivable to me that he get would get more votes than he would take more in a, in a general election if he ran in the general, which I don't know that he is. I, I haven't paid, I, right now he's just talking about primary him. But I could see in a general election if he did a Nader thing, right? Um, which I guess he can't because of the sore loser laws. So never mind. But all I was going to say is I could actually see him taking um, perhaps more votes from Trump than from Biden because of all the anti-vax stuff. Um, and it's weirdly, there are a lot of uh, single issue anti-vax voters. All right. So um, I've sort of agonized about whether I should bring this up. But as I think I'm drawing to a close. Yeah, I'm at 59 minutes and 50 seconds, according to this thing. Um, I'm going to do a thing of personal privilege here. Yesterday, this ProPublica story broke about Clarence Thomas going on trips with uh, this billionaire, Harlan Crow. I will just tell you, we said so, and we did a disclosure thing in the morning dispatch this morning. Um, uh, Harlan is an investor in the dispatch. He's... Uh, not our biggest investor, um, not our smallest investor, but it's like a, he's a normal investor in the dispatch. Um, he's also on the board of the American Enterprise Institute, where I am honored to be a scholar. And um, But I'm even more honored by the fact that I consider Harlan Crow a close friend. And I've gotten to know a lot of rich people um, over the last 15 years or so, mostly through AEI stuff, but you know through other things as well. And I would like to think that if I had those kinds of financial resources, that I would be um, a tenth as decent and ethical and fun and patriotic a person as Harlan. Harlan will hate me talking about this. So, because one of the things he hates is he's, he's, he's even more averse to compliments and praise than I am. But he is in my experience, one of the most decent and honorable um, mentions um, I've ever known. And I would say that about him if he were a plumber. Um, and so I have, I go into it that monumental bias, right? Just monumental bias. He's a friend. And, and I hold him in very high regard. And you can take that or leave that. Um, that's fine. Um, but so when I read the ProPublica piece, I have a, I come to it with a good deal of skepticism about not so much that 
Clarence Thomas didn't report this stuff because clearly, apparently he didn't, um, uh, though it's not entirely clear that he was supposed to. You know, the, my understanding, and we're going to have reporters look into all of this and there's going to be more reporting to come out. But my understanding is that these rules that ProPublica insinuates were so violated are very, very, very recent. And the ProPublica piece doesn't actually say what the laws that have been violated are, if I remember um, from reading it. Again, I was reading it mostly out of a sincere concern about about Harlan, who I think is probably mortified about this and worried about what it means for his friend, because that's part of the thing. Is I just got to tell you, like, Clarence Thomas is just legitimately a very close friend of of Harlan's, and one of the and not, like I'm a fan of Clarence Thomas. I don't agree with him on everything. Um, I think Ginny Thomas has behaved irresponsibly, um, and I think that's a very generous term for how she's behaved, but. I can just tell you, like, like I would be stunned. I mean, truly stunned if it turned out that Harlan Crow had ever done anything deliberately unethical in any way in his dealings with, with Clarence Thomas. And um, he's never had a case before the court. You know, I've talked to Harlan about some of these kinds of things. You know, he, it would not occur to, and mostly, and I mean this very sincerely, he wouldn't bring up things that he thought might cross ethical boundaries with Thomas, not because concerns about himself, but concerns about Clarence Thomas, about his friend. And so I'm very skeptical about a lot of this stuff. Um, I'm not here to carry an enormous amount of water for, for Clarence Thomas on this. I think that, you know, um, he probably, again, we'll find out what was actually required to him and what other practices, other justices had and all these kinds of things. I don't want to, prejudge the merits of this in order to seem like I am being, you know, bending over backwards to be um, fair to, or unfair to Thomas to prove that I'm, you know, being fair to Harlan or anything like that. I don't know, you know, I, I got to look into a lot of this stuff, but I'll just tell you that, like, it it's one of these things when you actually know somebody personally and hold them in very high regard, and then you see the crazy stuff that um, people are saying about them who have no idea who the person is, it can kind of, it can, it, it can ping all sorts of personal emotions about it. And so that's, I'm just in the spirit of full disclosure, letting people know that that's how I approach this thing. And I do think it's an utterly legitimate story to look into. Um, you know, and the, the, the test I have, and, you know, Steve and I talked about this yesterday, is like, how would I respond? If there was a similar story about a famously like left-wing billionaire who was taking uh, Sonia Sotomayor on vacations um, and inviting him to uh, his retreat someplace. And I've been to that retreat. I think it's glorious. Um, it's one of my favorite places in the world. Um, uh, as have hundreds of other people who are just friends or friends of friends of Harlan's. It's not... There's no skullduggery going on. Um, and, uh, um, but if this kind of story came out about, um, you know, Sonia Sotomayor or Elena Kagan or whatever, um, I could see myself through a sort of instinctive partisan knee-jerk response, having somewhat similar reactions, certainly thinking that this is something that's worth looking into. So, you know, we're going to look into it. Other people are going to look into it. That's great. But 
um, barring some really shocking revelation, um, I, um, I'm very much just on Team Harlan Crow, and I'm totally unapologetic in saying so because I know the guy pretty well. And I know the kind of values and ethics he has. And, um, and I know the kind of sacrifices he's made to do the ethical and right thing. And so that's where I come down. And if you just want to dismiss everything I say in the future about all of this related stuff um, because of my biases, you're free to do that. But that's where I come down. And I hopefully at least some people will take my word for it that if I think that way about the guy, and as do a lot of people you know out there, um, that uh, there's something to my position that I'm an okay judge of character. Um, all right, so that's about it. Oh, so the Remnant meetup thing at AI, May 1, we put the announcement in the Wednesday G-File, which was shockingly mediocre, I think. Um, and, uh, um, but it was fantastic if you graded about on the standard of, how much time I had to write it. Um, uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. We put the announcement in within, I think like 24 hours, maybe a little less. We got 105 RSVPs for it. So I don't know where we stand now. We may hit, you know, fire marshal territory soon. Um, so go check out that G file. If you can't get into it because you're not a subscriber to the, to the to the dispatch, hey, there's a solution for that. Subscribe to the dispatch. You know, try it for a month, right? Say, okay, it's worth 10, month, 10 bucks to sort of uh, come to the remnant thing with me, Steve, and Starwalt dishing about cable news and Fox and all this kind of stuff. And maybe after the 10 bucks trial thing for the month, you decide, hey, it's worth keeping. And you switch to a yearly. Or you just renew for another month. But, you know, uh, I guarantee you, if you can get to this thing, again, I don't know if it's full up yet, but, you know, um, you'll certainly have 10 bucks worth of hors d'oeuvres and, and wine or beer at this thing uh, to justify the subscription, but you have to subscribe. You have to become a member um, to get access to the thing. Um, and uh, gosh, what else? I guess that's about it. Um, oh, I had, well, I'll save it for another time. You guys have heard me ramble about nationalism and fusionism enough times. Um, but I did this class for a bunch of law school uh, students um, this week about fusionism versus nationalism. And it was, um, uh, it was rambly, but fun, I think. And um, it helped me to go back and look at some of the arguments that the NatCons have made and try because they had asked me to, um, you know, as Sarah likes to say, steel man, right? To make the best case, the devil's advocate case uh, for the position I oppose, which is obviously the NACON position. And um, it was an interesting exercise mentally going in, trying to figure out how to do that and reading through some of the things that people had written um, in defense of all of it. Um, so maybe, maybe I'll write about that today. I don't know. Um, but uh, we can talk more about that down the road. And uh, have a wonderful Easter. Um, have a wonderful what's left of Passover. Um, if you haven't listened to it, check out the A.B. Stoddard conversation because it was fun, uh, if, if ultimately depressing. 
and listen to the first conversation of the week I had with Jazz Shaw about UFOs, um, which a lot of people got a kick out of, including, I think, Jazz, because uh, Jazz Shaw spends a lot of time talking to audiences that are very well-versed in ufology, which is UFOology. Um, but he was saying how, like, he doesn't actually get to talk to normies from a cold start about uh, this stuff. And I tried to sort of get him to sort of explain these things and give us a sense of the divisions and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think, I, I, I like Jashaw. I mean, I disagree with him about some some conservative Republican stuff, but that's fine. I think he's an honorable and decent dude from what I can tell. And I apologize, I had forgotten that I had met him at CPAC once. I think he did about as good a job um, a person who's deeply into the UFO stuff could do of showing a certain, you know, a, a, a certain epistemological humility about what we know, what we don't know, about what can be explained, what can't be explained, how there are lots of different kinds of explanations for these things out there. Um, and, you know, I think that's hard for somebody who's really into something to do. And I thought he did a really, really good job at it. Um, and now I guess I'm just from Fring because I don't want to go right, but I got to do that. So, uh, thanks for listening. Please become a dispatch member and, um, I'll talk to you next time.